So, turn to Acts, Acts, that's Wednesday. Turn to 1 Kings chapter 19. Actually, we're going to finish up in 18 and move over into 19. So it's at the very end of 18. Uh, we're going to take Elijah from, from um, his greatest victory to probably his deepest despair. And they happen real, really close to each other. They're separated by about 40 days, a little more than that. But um, it's an amazing text, amazing text. So we'll pick up at verse 41. Uh, go back to Mount Carmel on your brain. You know, the showdown between the God of Israel and the prophets of Baal uh, took place. Of course, the God of Israel prevailed. And um, all of the prophets then were slaughtered. Um, God takes very seriously that which harms his people. So um, that's over. That has just happened. Look at verse 41. And evidently Ahab is watching this. King Ahab is watching this. Jezebel's not watching it. The wicked Jezebel who's brought all these pagan gods into Israel. She's not watching it. Uh, she's at their winter home. Uh, <laughs> Um, she's at their winter home, a uh, place called Jezreel. Their normal home was Samaria. But she's at Jezreel, so she's not watching it. She's not far from Mount Carmel. So here's what happens. Here's the postlude to uh, the, the showdown on Mount Carmel. Look at verse 41. And Elijah said to Ahab, Go up, eat and drink, for there is the sound of the rushing of rain. Uh, so what's, what's Elijah telling Ahab he can do now? He can party. He can, he can have a feast. He can celebrate because uh, the rain's coming. Uh, Elijah hears the coming of the rain. By the way, he's hearing it by faith. But he hears the coming of the rain, the, the rushing of the rain. Uh, he knows it's coming now because Elijah started the drought which led to the famine. He did that in the opening verse we looked at several weeks ago, uh, chapter 17, verse 1. Uh, we know from the book of James that it was about three and a half years that this drought's gone on. So it was um, the prayers of uh, Elijah that started the drought. It's going to be the prayers of Elijah that ends the drought. Uh, again, we're told that in the New Testament book of James. So uh, evidently, Elijah's ready to end the drought. And he tells Ahab that he can go back to his, his, his winter home. He can eat and drink and be merry uh, because the, the rain's coming. Look at verse 42. So Ahab went up to eat and drink. And Elijah went up to the top of Mount Carmel. So Elijah goes back up to the top of the mountain. And watch what Elijah does as he goes up to the top of the mountain. And he bowed himself down on the earth and put his face between his knees. Uh, when you see that, most of us assume he, Elijah's doing what? Praying. He's praying. Um, that, that will be what you read everywhere except among the Jews. Uh, we Christians say he's praying. He's obviously praying uh, because he's bringing an end uh, to the drought. Uh, the Jewish community, they're apt to say he's just humbling himself, uh, he's exhausted. That's why he's resting his head. He's exhausted. One of the reasons the Jewish community 
And they, they won't say absolutely he's not praying. But you may or may not know, because I've mentioned a few times, even to the Jewish community that we know today, they do not kneel in prayer, right? Shake your head yes, they don't kneel in prayer. <laughs> they only kneel to pray. Um, they, and they did it recently. Well, in Jerusalem, they probably weren't. They did it recently, Yom Kippur and Rosh Hashanah. Those high holy days are the only time the Jewish community kneels to pray. Uh, there's... Um, Two reasons for that, three reasons for that. Uh, one, there is a law in the book of Leviticus that says do not kneel on the stone or the rock or the pavement, which is why a couple weeks ago when they were doing uh, Yom Kippur, they um, would take like a towel or something to spread out so there'd be something between them and whatever the floor might be. They don't want to violate that law in Leviticus. Uh, the other reasons they don't tend to pray now is they knelt for prayer during the temple period, and the temple's destroyed. It's another way of reminding themselves that the temple's gone. Uh, in almost everything that the Jewish do liturgically, they remember. They remember that the temple's been destroyed. They remember that, we've, uh, been, that they've been cast out of Jerusalem. Uh, they were cast out, um, and most of the Jews have wandered around the world for the last 2,500 years. If you ever attend a um, Seder meal, Passover, uh, in a Jewish home, um, they always conclude the Seder meal with four words. You know what those four words are? Next year in Jerusalem. Next year in Jerusalem. Regardless of where they're doing the Seder meal at. They, they say next year in Jerusalem. Uh, if you've ever been to a Jewish wedding, and this is pretty much across the spectrum from Reconstructionist to uh, Hasidic Orthodox, um, if you've ever been to a Jewish wedding, you may remember they, they smash a glass. You know why they do that? To remind themselves the temple's been destroyed. And even in the midst of a joyful event like a wedding, don't forget the pain of the temple being destroyed and the Jewish people being run out of Jerusalem. Uh, the other reason that Jews don't tend to pray, and this may be, well, it may be one of the main reasons. They don't tend to kneel to pray because we do. And during the second, third, fourth century when Judaism and the new way of being Jewish called Christianity was developing and there was a parting of the ways and Christianity moved beyond Jerusalem and the Holy Land, uh, in the midst of that divorce, in the midst of that parting of the ways, uh, both of us, both sides looked for ways to differentiate ourselves. And one of the ways the Jewish community was they kneel to pray so we don't. So uh, unless you're in a synagogue on um, Yom Kippur or on Rosh Hashanah, they'll kneel several times during Yom Kippur worship. They'll kneel once during Rosh Hashanah, their new year. Um, you won't see them kneel. Uh, Yom Kippur, then, they'll actually prostrate themselves in prayer. Um, so let me say this. I hope that you know... And it is true in both Judaism and Christianity, maybe a little bit more so in Christianity. Uh, I hope you know that your posture in prayer is important. Um, you know, you should let your whole body participate. Prayer is not just a mental exercise. Uh, so um, I just encourage you 
to think about your posture in praying. If you're not used to kneeling, I know some of us have bum knees, but if you're not used to kneeling, that is a really good Christian practice, and Judaism at certain points. Uh, Being prostrate. Um, just, just think about your body, how your body participates in, in prayer. Uh, you ever notice that in the Jewish community, in Orthodox Judaism, um, when they're standing, particularly if you're watching Orthodox, like at the Western Wall, when they're standing what, and they're praying, what else are they doing physically? They're rocking. They're rocking. That's their way of praying. Again, you want your whole body, not just a mental exercise. You want your body. And that's why in the Christian tradition, if you look back over the last 2,000 years, we have stood, we have knelt, we have been prostrate, we have seen with our eyes stained glass windows, we have felt the bread and the wine and the oil, we have smelled the incense. Uh, Christian worship at its best engages all five senses. It was only kind of in the Western world post-enlightenment uh, that it just became a mental exercise. Worship just became a mental exercise. But I just encourage you to notice in the Bible the postures that you see people using when they pray uh, and consider um, you know, the importance of it to you. C.S. Lewis would never pray going to bed at night because he's like me. If you try to lay in bed and pray, what happens? Go to sleep. I think that's very, you know, part of me says it's wonderful to fall asleep in the arms of God. Part of me also says it's a little disrespectful if I fall asleep in the middle of talking to my wife. She, she tells me about it. Um, now, he would pray, particularly in the last 10 years of his life, when he wasn't teaching at Oxford, he was teaching at Cambridge, as he took the train to and from Cambridge. That's where he did some of his praying. So you have to find what works for you. I know some people that are uh, walking. Is very much a part of the prayer life. Uh, but anyway, offer your whole body to God. It's not just a mental or sort of spiritual exercise. Anyway, we think Elijah's praying here um, because he's, he's calling an end to the, to the drought. So he's, he's, he goes back up on top of Mount Carmel after he sends Ahab away. And that becomes important in a moment. He sends Ahab away to make his way back to the city of Jezreel. Uh, he goes back up. He takes his servant with him. You notice that in verse 43. Now, of course, the text does not tell us who his servant is. That doesn't mean we haven't wondered about it. You know what the tradition is in Judaism? I think it's a beautiful tradition. You know who they say the servant may be? The son of the widow of Zarephath. The one that Elijah raised from the dead. Keep these stories tied together. Don't forget the one you just read when you're reading this one. So they say that might, you know, that might be the way the son of the widow of Zarephath sort of um, repaid his gratitude to Elijah as he became Elijah's personal servant. Who knows? It's, it, you write your fictionalized account and put that in it. I, I think that makes sense that um, this nameless servant may be, may be that young man. Anyway, notice what, what goes on here. Verse 43, and he, Elijah, said to his servant, go up, now look toward the sea. Mount Carmel's right there on the Mediterranean. Go up, now look toward the sea. And he went up and looked and said, there is nothing. And he said, go again seven times. This is a very obedient servant. He said, go again seven times. And at the seventh time, the servant said, behold, 
a little cloud like a man's hand is rising from the sea. A little tiny, you know, the cloud way off in the distance, about the size of a man's hand, is rising from the sea. And Elijah said, go up, say to Ahab, prepare your chariot and go down, lest the rain stop you. So evidently he's not left yet. Ahab's not left yet. In the, in, it's the, this is the Jezreel Valley where the city of Jezreel is. And it, um, in, in, lot, in, in great rainstorms that come in from the Mediterranean, the, the land can become marshy and swampy. So driving a chariot may be difficult. So that's why Elijah is saying to him, go up, prepare your chariot and go now, lest the rain stop you. So Ahab, get on, get on your way, going back to Jezreel. Verse 45, because again, Elijah is a man of faith. He knows the rain is coming. He has prayed. He's got confirmation from God. He knows the rain is coming. And in a little while, the heavens grew black with clouds and wind, and there was a great rain. And again, if you've spent time in, in, in Israel, you know that when those storms they come in quickly from the Mediterranean. Think about the disciples on the Sea of Galilee. They, the storms come in quickly. They're rather ferocious when they come in, and that's what happened. Here comes a storm, and there was a great rain, thanks to the prayers of Elijah. And Ahab rode and went to Jezreel, his winter home. Verse 46, and the hand of the Lord, that may be um, kind of a, um, a euphemism for the Holy Spirit, and the hand of the Lord was on Elijah. He gathered up his garment and ran before Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. A um, couple things there. One, it's, it was well known in the ancient world that when a king or somebody was coming in a chariot, um, oftentimes there'll be people who would precede him as an honor to announce the king's coming. So it looks like maybe... Uh, um, Elijah's showing Ahab some honor here. Because at this point, till we go into the next sentence, at this point, Ahab assumes, I mean, Elijah assumes that Ahab has just watched this amazing spectacle on the top of Mount Carmel. Uh, he's just watched uh, his wife's 450 prophets of Baal get killed. Maybe Elijah's thinking, okay, now I've got Ahab. We've got Ahab back to monotheism. We've got Ahab back to the God of Abraham, Jacob, um, and, and Isaac. So, um, and it's pretty obvious when you keep reading in chapter 19, this was a high for Elijah. I mean, if anything could have, you would think, except evil is very tenacious, if anything could have pulled the people of Israel away from the worship of false gods, You'd think that spectacle on Mount Carmel could have done it. So he, he, he may be, you know, showing some respect to Ahab because he thinks Ahab's on his side now. Uh, but uh, most of us also see sort of a supernatural thing going on here. Um, he's in a chariot, Ahab is. Uh, Elijah girds his loins and, and runs, and it, and it appears he ran before Ahab. He got there first. Because the hand of the Lord was on him. So there may be something supernatural here. This may be one more time you are shown that the God of Israel is greater than, than Baal and the pagan gods of those people. Um, some people who have a hard time with supernatural, some people say Ahab knew a shortcut. You know, he didn't have to take the roads 
like the um, chariot would have to take the roads. But uh, most of us is supernatural thing here, you know, because the hand of the Lord was on Elijah. And again, these big numbers weren't in the original Bible. They're here for our sake. So keep reading into chapter 19. Ahab told, told Jezebel, it's not going in well. You probably figure that one out. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. I would like to have just seen that conversation. <laughs> Jezebel's probably not happy that Ahab let all her 450 prophets of Baal get killed. Ahab probably didn't want to tell her that it happened. Um, yeah, I'd like to see that conversation. Verse 2. Then Jezebel sent a message to Elijah saying, and this is a typical ancient vow. We see this other places in the Bible, and we see it in ancient literature. This is a typical ancient vow that Jezebel is going to take at this point, and she wants to make sure Elijah knows that she has made this promise, she has taken this vow. So may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them, my prophets, by this time tomorrow. So what is she promising to do? She's known for killing the prophets of the God of Israel. Yeah, she's promising to kill him. You know, send message. Send a message. Uh, to Elijah, that I'm taking a vow that uh, bad things will happen to me if I don't kill you. Well, so all of a sudden, the mood changes dramatically. The mood changes dramatically for Elijah, um, which is, again, we'll look at it eventually, but that verse, that one simple verse in James, where it talks about how the prayer of a righteous man avails much, and it uses Elijah as an example, and it talks about how Elijah started and stopped the drought. The author of the book of James says, Elijah, a man like us, or a man of like passion with us, but a man like us. So when the author of James says that in the New Testament, he points out, yeah, he did remarkable things through prayer, but he's a man like us, and he's a man like us and in a lot of other ways. He, he shares our na- na- nature. Look at verse 3. Then Elijah was afraid. Um, the adrenaline, I guess the adrenaline's still flowing for Elijah because watch what happens. Then he was afraid and he arose and ran for his life and came to what city? And again, these geographical references are here for a reason. They, they, you know, they, you know, I'm sure the author would say, I apologize that you don't know the geography of our land, but go learn it. Um, throughout the Bible, the Old Testament, when you are, when you hear the reference to all of Israel, frequently that reference is from Dan to Beersheba, or Beersheba. Dan to Beersheba. Dan's in the far north. Beersheba's in the far south. So that, that's, um, from north to south, that's usually the way the land is, is um, defined, from Dan to Beersheba. So he's going as far south as possible uh, in the kingdom, in the kingdom. Um, now, he, he's, that, that's about 130, 140 miles, uh, depending on how you go. Uh, you're in a lot of, a lot of that's desert land if you've been outside of Jerusalem heading south, you know, like down toward the Dead Sea and Masada, is you can't make a straight line. 
Uh, there's wadis, there's places where water has rushed, rushed through and made you know, deep, deep canyons. But that, that's the territory. He's, he's making his way all the way to, to, to Beersheba, um, which belongs to Judah. That's the southern kingdom. Um, 130 miles he's running. Uh, this is a long distance. I, I'm glad I don't have to run 130 miles. Uh, she would just have to go ahead and kill me. I'm not, I can't run 130 miles. But, so, but again, I think the hand of the Lord was on him. He's going this great distance to the, to the extreme south to get away from uh, the power of Ahab and Jezebel. Again, Ahab and Jezebel, they're the northern tribes. Judah's the southern tribes. Beersheba's at the southern tip of the southern tribes. So he, he's, he's, he goes, he's, he's with the servant. But watch this. Uh, he ran for his life, came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. So he begins to be by himself at this point. Uh, I hope that you've noticed whether it's the brook Cherith, perhaps some of the time he's in Zarephath. Um, Elijah knew how to be by himself. You know, one of the detrimental things about the spiritual life in our culture is we we can, we can go for weeks on end and never be by ourselves or, or never be in silence. And you're going to see silence come to play a little bit later in the story, but it's important for your spiritual life to know how to be by yourself, be by yourself with God and uh, be in silence. So he leaves his servant. I'm sure I would have enjoyed the servant's company because he's getting ready to go on a journey now for 40 days and 40 nights which I'm sure sounds familiar to you, right? 40 days, 40 nights. It should sound familiar to you. Um, look at verse 4. But he, went, he himself went a day's journey further into the wilderness or the desert and came and sat down under a broom tree. Uh, a lot of translations say juniper, but it, it's really called a broom tree in Israel. It's kind of a short, maybe eight-foot-tall, nine-foot-tall tree, but it did give some shade, does give some shade, um, in the desert. So he, he, he leaves his servant behind because what's, notice, this may be why he leaves his servant behind. Notice what he's going to ask God to do. He goes one day's journey into the, further into the desert, came, he sat down under a broom tree, and he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I'm no better than my father's. He's talking about his ancestors who failed God. So it is enough now, Lord, take away my life, for I'm no better than my father's. Um, he's a devout Jew, so he won't, he won't take his own life, but he's asking God to take his life. He's asking to die. I, I hope, I know I'm very grateful, very grateful for all the prayers that God has refused to answer that I've prayed. Uh, I always remember what, probably remember what Billy Graham said, um, famously said, Billy Graham one time said, if God had answered all of his prayers, he had married the wrong woman several times. <laughs> um, but God had him hold off till Ruth came along. Um, anyway, so God does not answer Elijah's prayer here. Verse 5, and he lay down and he slept under a broom tree. Can you imagine how exhausted he is? Just the adrenaline on top of Mount Carmel um, and the adrenaline of running, getting away from Ahab um, and Jezebel. You know, if you don't 
know what it means to kind of function on adrenaline and then for that adrenaline to stop. Um, one of the things when I was doing some doctoral work, which a lot of the work that we did had to do with spiritual renewal, spiritual revival, how the Holy Spirit works in, in the life of a Christian, how the Holy Spirit works in the life of the church. One of the weird things my mentor made us do was we had to take a calm card. I don't know what a calm card is. I bet you know what a mood ring is. When adrenaline is pumping, your extremities can get colder because when adrenaline is pumping, you know, you may be running away from some animal or something. So, so, the, so the blood kind of circulates a little more around your vital organs, but that's why, that was the point of the mood rings. That's why they would change color. Uh, because that's why the, the temperature of your hands, your extremities change color. Uh, he had us take a week, I think it was two weeks, take two weeks. Use, and the comm card was the same thing. It just had this little thermometer you touched, and it took the temperature of your hand. And, um, and what he had us do was track our adrenaline, uh, track our adrenaline rushes. Because particularly, this was back in the early 90s, uh, there were a lot of books being written about adrenaline addiction in America. Some people are addicted to adrenaline, which is not good for your vital organs. It's not good for your sanity. But there are people addicted to adrenaline. Um, and what he was having us do was to check our adrenaline because he wanted to help us eventually come to understand the work, in the, Holy the work of the Holy Spirit and your adrenaline pumping aren't necessarily the same thing. Uh, he also wanted us to understand, guess what day of the week most clergy resignations happen? Sunday. Late Sunday, Monday. Because you're on an adrenaline high on Sunday morning. You know, so I don't get weird. I go home after three worship services and take a nap. <laughs> but you're on an adrenaline high Sunday morning. And then for a lot of, particularly Americans, normal, when your adrenaline stops flowing, that's called normal but for a lot of Americans who are we, are, we are bombarded constantly so our adrenaline can flow. When your adrenaline is not flowing, that feels like depression. And it's really just normal. But there are a lot of, a lot of us addicted to adrenaline. As I stand here and drink my caffeine drink, uh, a lot of us are addicted to adrenaline. And you, you, we do need to watch that. I mean, I'm sure his adrenaline, you know, he, he's, had, he's, he's crashed. He's laying down. He needs the sleep. God knows he needs the rest. So he lay down, he slept under a broom tree after he said, God, he hoped he didn't wake up. You get that, right? He's prayed for God to take his life. He hopes he doesn't wake up. He, lay, he lays down to sleep under the broom, broom tree. Behold, behold, an angel touched him and said to him, arise and eat. So God, as God does, sent an angel to take care of Elijah and he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake. Now, I'm sure you've heard the old joke, this is the first angel food cake. Um, <laughs> there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. So Elijah did what the angel said. I'm sure he's, he's exhausted, he's hungry. There's, you know, he's, been, he's been real busy for several days. Um, he's been real busy. He gets up and he, ate, he eats. And he goes and lays down again. I, I think the angel let him sleep a while longer. Verse 7, I think there's, I think there's a, a period of time between the end of verse 6 and the beginning of verse 7. And he lays down. But eventually the angel came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, 
for the journey is too great for you. He is getting ready to embark on a 40-day, 40-night journey. Um, I've often thought that, you know, just over the top of our lives in general, we need to have a banner that says the journey is too great for you. You know, sometimes it's the circumstances of life that helps us understand that the journey is too great for me, for you. And that's, uh, you know, that, that shows our need of grace, our need of God, our need of the promises of God's Word. Yeah, the journey's too, whatever journey you're on, chances are the journey's too great for you. And if it's not, you need to work on that. We, as Christians, we should always be attempting to do things that if God didn't show up, we'd fail. Yeah, think about that a while. That's, that's core Christian conviction. If you just attempt those things that are easy, we should always be attempting things for God that if God didn't show up, we'd fail. That's how God gets glory in this world. He gets glory through us. I, you know, um, you know if, throughout the Bible, you see stuff being attempted. You, know, uh, you, see God, you see things being done, attempted by God, that if God didn't show up, they would have never happened. Like the, what just happened on the top of Mount Carmel. Uh, ex, famous quote, expect, expect great things from God, do great things for God, or attempt great things for God. Uh, you should always have written over the top of your life, the journey is too great for you. Uh, if not, you need to think about, you need to evaluate your journey. Uh, but a rise in need for the journey is too great for you. Now, if you're just hanging out in your comfort zone, you might not need that banner. But I encourage you to think about the need for the journey being too great for you. Attempt something great. Look at verse 8. And he arose, and he ate, and he drank, and he went in the strength of that food. Evidently he fasted, which this again sounds familiar, right? He went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mount of God. Well, of course, you saw Moses doing this. You saw Jesus doing this. Fasting for a 40-day period, a lengthy period in the desert. Again, it's really important to learn how to spend time alone with, with God. Um, so he's going to take a 40-day journey. Now, he's going to, to Horeb. We know where he's going. He's going to Horeb, the Mount of God. Um, what's the other name for Horeb? Sinai. He's going back to Mount Sinai. If, you want to, if you're near burnout and you need refreshment, watch, read this text. He, you know, he's taken care of physically. He sleeps, he eats, he drinks, and he goes back to where it all started. He goes back to his spiritual roots. It's a long journey. It's, it's about a 200 more mile journey to where we think Sinai is, Mount Horeb. Uh, um, it's called Horeb usually in the book of Deuteronomy. Uh, the other books of Moses uh, usually call it Sinai. Some people say the range of mountains is Horeb and the particular mountain is Sinai. But we know where he's going back to. He's not just going to any old mountain he can get a hold of. He's going back to, to where it all started. He's going back to his spiritual roots, his spiritual foundations. And uh, he's going to make it a 40-day journey. Now, he could have made, I don't know how long it would take to do 200 miles on foot, but it doesn't have to be 40 days. But uh, again, the same thing as the wandering of the children of Israel. That, that was about a 12-day journey from Egypt to the land of promise by foot. Uh, but God had them 
take it for 40 days. That work that's done in the wilderness is important work. Now, we want to get through the wilderness in a hurry. You know, as soon as we enter the wilderness, we want out of the wilderness. And God always says sometimes it's, it's important to hang out in the wilderness. God does some of his best work in us in these wilderness times. Whether it's Jesus for 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness. Here's Elijah, 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness. Uh, and he's going back to Sinai. Uh, Sinai, of course, you know your Sunday school, that's where uh, the covenant was created. That's where um, Moses got the law that was part of the covenant between the children of Israel and, and God. Uh, also, according to the Bible, particularly some of the sermon, or a sermon in the book of Acts, part of Sinai is also where, where um, Moses encountered the burning bush. So Sinai is both remembered as perhaps the place of the burning bush and certainly the giving of the law. So maybe um, he's going back to where it starts. He's going back to his roots. He's going back to remember the basics of his faith. He's going back to um, maybe even try to have another burning bush experience. I want, you don't have to answer this, but I'd love to do a survey in this congregation. When you walk into the sanctuary... If you walk in via the middle door, what's hanging above that middle door? A burning bush. It's not just a weird modern art. It's a burning bush that's up there. You know, we need to seek these burning bush experiences. The rest of you will notice the next time when you walk in there. It's a burning bush. It's an artistic, artistic rendering of the burning bush, and there is like... It's a burning bush that sort of folds over into a cross. Because, of course, the cross is like a burning bush for us. So it's kind of the Old Testament, New Testament coming together. I know that because I know the family who put it up there, and they told me that's what it was. Uh, And I think it's in a book around here somewhere. But, yeah, we need to seek these burning bush experiences. We need to know what it means to return to the basics of the faith. And that's what you see him doing. So... Uh, we'll stop there, uh, because then we're, as you continue on, you're going to see God eventually speak to, to Elijah during this time. So we'll, we'll, we'll stop at this point.